Have you realized yet that your purpose in life is constantly evolving? The thing is, it can only evolve, grow, and expand to the extent you're willing to do the work to heal. That's why I've created a transformative half-day virtual event designed for purpose chasers who want to integrate their authentic selves in every aspect of their life. Together, we're going to co-create conversations around reflecting on current patterns, amplifying your genuine desires, prioritizing fulfillment over the facade of what you should do, and we'll talk about achieving actual tangible results. I believe our work together will have a profound impact on your life as we break you out of autopilot, scale your potential, and set you up to attract everything you say you desire. Plus, this space will be an enjoyable and supportive environment for new connections with like-hearted purpose chasers from all over the world. Together, we will laugh, dance, and maybe cry, but we'll be doing the work together. If this speaks to your soul and you want to detox and release what's no longer serving you so you can live fully in the pillars of redefining wealth, tickets are currently complimentary for this half day of coaching, training, and co-creating a new blueprint for your heart's desires directly with me. So grab your ticket today at patricewashington.com slash soul detox. That's patricewashington.com slash soul detox. When you think about what your gift is, what do people already say wow and thank you for in the same sentence? You are listening to the Redefining Wealth Podcast with Patrice Washington. In today's episode, I sit down with entrepreneur Casanova Brooks. He says that you definitely have a story and that story is not for you. Hey there, this is Patrice Washington from patricewashington.com where we chase purpose, not money. Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Wealth. If you are brand new here, here's what you need to know. This is a community that believes that wealth is so much more than money and material possessions. Here, we believe in the original 12th century definition of wealth, which says it's the condition of well-being. So each and every week, we seek to unpack what that means by looking at our six pillars of wealth. If you've never heard of that, I invite you to learn more. Head to patricewashington.com forward slash start here. That's patricewashington.com forward slash start here and you'll get a free audio training that'll break it all down so you can catch up. There has been so much going on this week. One of those things is that we're in the middle of our Created for Purpose challenge. And when I listened back to Casanova's episode, it couldn't have been aligned any better. So if you are in the Created for Purpose challenge right now, you know that this week has been absolutely phenomenal. And this episode with Casanova was recorded months ago, and it just lined up on the calendar to be divine. It it just reiterates why we all need to commit to our story and why it's important to stop dismissing your gifts, stop denying your gifts and stop doubting that you were created for more. And we've been talking about that in the challenge and This just does a beautiful job of illustrating it all. So the other reason that I'm so glad to have Casanova on this week is because we have experienced a lot in the last seven days here in America. And I also love that for this episode, I get to share the story of a great 
African-American man who is just up to amazing things in the world, has such a brilliant story, and is using his voice for good. And I just want to honor and celebrate Black men everywhere because I know that it's always hard and scary to walk around as a Black person in America. That's the truth. That is my truth. That is our collective truth. But it has to hurt. I know it does. And so even here on this podcast, I want to do a better job of highlighting the stories of Black men in particular, because maybe if more non-Black people in my audience can see what I see, maybe we can start to speak up and not settle for being non-racist in this country, but go for being anti-racist and speaking up when other people are not being treated fairly. I have a whole episode. We'll do that next week. So much has been on my mind. So I'll get into that next week, but this week it's about Casanova. So let me give you his bio. Casanova Brooks is an award-winning author, high-energy keynote speaker, real estate professional, and entrepreneur. Through his battles with adversity from really young, he had limited resources, but Casanova learned to develop a bulletproof mindset to thrive and succeed in life and business. From producing 46 deals and $8 million in sales his first year in real estate, he now owns multiple businesses, properties. He's an action taker. He's a podcaster. He is a sweet and kind and brilliant and phenomenal Black man. And I can't wait for you to hear this young man's story. Without further ado, here is Casanova Brooks. Welcome to the Redefining Wealth podcast, Casanova. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on here. I know it's going to be a phenomenal episode. Man, I know it too. So, you know, I always have to give a little backstory about how, how I meet people and all that great stuff. So I met Casanova when I was speaking at Thrive in Las Vegas earlier in 2019. I think it was around late May, early June, because I was moving back to Atlanta at the time, introduced by Nehemiah, who is a friend of the podcast. Check out his episode, Circle of Greatness. You know, I meet a lot of people, but I'm not instantly drawn to people's spirits. And I get invited on a lot of podcasts, but I say no more often than I say yes. So when you asked me about coming on your podcast, Casanova, I, in, I was like, oh, for sure. Because I just remember you having such a genuine and just nice spirit, like just good energy. And I was like, yeah, I'm with that. So recently I was a guest on Casanova's podcast, Dream Nation. Um, and before we started going in my interview, he shared a little bit of his story. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> like the interviewer in me wanted to take over your interview of me. And I was like, that's inappropriate. So perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I should just invite you on my podcast. So I am so excited about having you here. Now, I'm really intentional when I invite people on Redefining Wealth. I can always immediately see the connection of the pillars because I teach based on the six pillars. Um, and I never really start with tell us your story, you know, because I feel like sometimes it's like, just get to the questions you want to ask like this, you know, and I know that when you get interviewed a lot, you you tired of telling the same story, but your story is so fascinating to me. I have to ask you, 
to tell us your story before you get to who you are today and big real estate guy. I got all that, but you got to take us back at least to high school and growing up in Chicago. So let's start there. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And I definitely appreciate the introduction. I tell you, first and foremost, I always describe myself as a relationship builder. And that was early on. I quickly understood that I didn't have a ton of talents and gifts, but I did have a gift to just build relationships. And just like you, I think that I could always I could spot someone who had good vibes, good energy, and I was never afraid to just put myself out there. And the worst that they could say was no. Now, early on as a kid, I felt like I heard it a lot. So it gave me thicker skin later on in life. Uh, But that was who I was. If I look back at it, I think that I'm just like any other boy growing up inner city. So I was raised by single women. My mom was a single mother in, in the household. And then my grandma, she stepped in to lead the way for being my father because my dad was never in my life. He was alive and he lived in Chicago just like me, but he never built the relationships. And I was the only child on my mom's side. But on my dad's side, I had 13 brothers and sisters, at least last that I knew. So my dad just never built that relationship with any of us. And so I had to work with what I had. Now, I always love to to tell this story. But at the same time, I like to preface it by saying that my mom and grandma, they did the best that they could for me. Mm -hmm. And I was never deprived of love and support. I just didn't have the resources that I wanted to have and that most kids should have growing up. But my mom, as as she always would like to tell me, she was robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I heard you say that on my podcast. So that was where it resonated that much more with me because I'm like, oh, my God, she definitely understands, you know, where I was coming from. So a lot of the times when I was growing up, um, I had to figure out ways to do it myself. So what does that look like? For me, I didn't have financial resources or even financial literacy, but I remember like my first ever job when I was seven or eight years old was I would go to the gas station, which is probably like five, six blocks away, and I would stand outside in front of people's cars. So when they would go in, this was back, this was probably around 95. So this is back before everybody was using their credit cards at the at the gas pump machine. So you would go inside to pay with cash and you come back out and you're about ready to pump your gas where you see little old me standing right there. And I would say, hey, Miss Patrice or hey, ma'am. Right. Because obviously I didn't know your name, but I would just say, hey, do you mind if I pump your gas? And you say, OK. So I pumped the gas just hoping that you would give me a quarter, 50 cents, a dollar. And then a lot of the times that just worked out in my favor because people would get kind of gather and be like, he could have been doing something else. But he's out here pumping gas, trying to serve other people. And that just worked out in my favor. So I always like to describe myself as, yes, I did have a lack of resources, but I always had big dreams, big ambitions to go out. And I wanted to have more. I wanted to be more. So I first started with what could I do to serve more? And then from there, it just kind of really always worked out. And I didn't have a lot of people to show me, you know, what it was like, because growing up early on, I did have a lot of people that said, Casanova, you know what? I think if you keep your head on right, you can be anything that you want to be in life. And the people who didn't say that, I think I just tuned them out early on. But it was because I had the heart and the spirit of my mom that didn't allow me to feel like I wasn't the greatest thing walking this earth. Mm -hmm. She always empowered me. Right. And, And I was her big thing. So I did. But the problem was with that was what other people would say, Casanova, you can be anything you want to be. I didn't see anyone who was out there, at least in my immediate area that was doing anything that I wanted to do in life. So Mm -hmm. I felt like I was very lost as like, okay, I get it, but how do I know what I want to be? So it was a lot of trial and error for me. 
to be able to find those things out. But luckily along the path, I just kept exposing myself. And that I would say really propelled me to, to make it to where I am today. So let's go to high school though, because you had a devastating blow in high school that connects to the to the fit pillar that we talk about so often here. So what happened in high school? Yeah, and, and I appreciate it. I used to be very, very reluctant, reluctant to share this story until I would say probably about two years ago where one of my mentors has said, you got to understand that your story is not for you, right? You trying to hold it in. Mm-hmm. You got to make sure that you expose that because there's somebody else out there that's in that moment right now that needs to hear it to understand what can come about. So I appreciate you asking. Well, I'll tell you, I was very active as a kid. I was very energetic. And then when I was 15, I was transitioning from football season getting over to going into basketball season. And uh, it was my sophomore year in high school and I just found myself having a hard time breathing. So as I'm going, walking through the halls with friends and things like that, and I left football early. And so my buddies, I'm like, hey, I can't breathe. And he's like, oh, it's probably just because, you know, you didn't finish out the year in football. So conditioning for basketball is getting to you. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Well, then I told my mom one day, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time breathing. I'm really tired. She's like, okay, if it persists, you know, we're going to go to the, the doctor. Now, for me growing up, I was never, ever sick. I never had the chicken pox, measles, flu, nothing. And so it was it was uncharacteristic is what my mom saw. So after a couple of days of me still coming home, taking naps, talking about that I couldn't really breathe, we go to the emergency room and uh, they quickly say, hey, you know what? We're going to run some tests, but we're going to keep him overnight. Now, for me, I didn't see any problem with that because I'd always seen on TV that you get the nurses, they're going to give you the ice creams, the sponge baths. I'm like, oh, I got it made. Sponge baths. (laughs) Listen, all I can go off of is what I saw on TV. And I was never really in hospitals like that. I mean, I had family, but I was sheltered from that. And so anyway, um, I'm in there and then I remember it just like it was yesterday around like 1 a.m. in the morning, they come in and they're like, hey, you know what? We think that it's going to be a lot more serious. We actually got public transportation that's going to take you. At this time, I'm in Sioux City, Iowa. So my grandma made the decision to move me from Chicago to Iowa to give me a little bit of a better life. And they say, hey, we're going to ship you to the University of Iowa. And my mom and grandma are like, wait, well, tell us what's going on. What do you mean? Like, why are we? And they're like, well, we think that it might be more serious. They're like, what do you what does that mean? They're like, we think you might have cancer. And I just remember my grandma saying, whoa. And then they're like, we don't know the extent of it, but it looks like it's a lot more than that we can take on here. And so Mm -hmm. next thing you know, you know, we're we're being that's like four hours later going to University of Iowa. They run some tests on it and it comes back that I have stage four lymphoma cancer all throughout my body. And the doctors have told my parents and me right in front that if we would have waited two more weeks that I could have just died, you know, in my sleep. Because it was all throughout my body. And so that was the the beginning of that storm for me. I went through 45 days of chemotherapy, dyes, treatments, um, everything that anybody else experiences when it comes to cancer. And, uh, you know, I, I just had to go through it. At 15 years old. At 15 years old, it was it was very tough, too, because more importantly, obviously, I had a port in my chest, which the scar is still right here at a port that stuck out of my chest and it was connected to my jugular vein. But I think more importantly, what was so devastating for me at that time was that obviously a lot of my friends and everything heard about it because I'm now no longer in school, all these other things. But more importantly, when I got back, people started to treat me so much differently. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily to be hurtful or harmful. But when I say treat me different, they all started to treat me as I was a victim, which I was not used to. I was used to being the guy. 
in one way or another. So now they're like, oh, are you okay? Are you sick? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. So that was a lot for me to understand how to, to still be able to hold up my spirit, right? To not feel like a victim, but at the same time, understand that what I was going through, it wasn't going to break me. It was only a stepping stone. And at 15, that's very tough to deal with because those are your best years of trying to, to show that you're a somebody at 15, 16, 17, prom, sports, everything else. Right. But that was tough. But, you know, I came through it and, and with the support of, like I said, those two women and my mom and my grandma and the other, you know, friends that I had, I was able to come through, you know, and, and become even stronger. And so you went through that whole process of remission for two years, was it? Yep, two years. And it was a lot of back and forth because where I was living at in Sioux City, Iowa, they did have a cancer center, but that wasn't where my primary physician was, which was in Iowa City, Iowa at the University of Iowa. So it was a lot of traveling. On top of that, keep in mind, my mom and my grandma, my family never owned a house car business. So where were they getting the money to be able to you know, fund all of these things. And that's what you don't think about as a kid. And I didn't ever think about it at 15, right? There's a lot of public funding, a lot of just people trying to help wherever they could. Wow. Wow. And so one of the things that we say here at Redefining Wealth for the faith pillar, one of the things I say all the time is that I know that everything that's happened in my life didn't happen to me. It happened for me. When you think about those two years and you look at where you are today, how do you see that as playing a part in who you are? Do you see it as something that definitely happened for Casanova Brooks to be who he is today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason being is because early on, there was so much transitioning in my life. Talk about coming from inner city, south side of Chicago to then being moved against your will to Sioux City, Iowa, like that was a huge transition as well. Culture shock. I never saw people in Chicago, but it's unless I was downtown or like the Harold Washington Library or doing something touristy, I never saw people who didn't look like you or I, right? So then when I moved to Sioux City, I got to then understand how to build those relationships. So I think when I, when I look forward and I say, why did that happen to me? I think that what it told me was that I had to focus on living each day to the max of my ability because it could have been taken at that moment. And I was never thinking that way, especially at 15, because we're young, we're eating what we want, we're doing what we want. We're very rambunctious, all these different things. And so then that taught me to like, listen, you got another opportunity here to go after everything that you want. Lack of resources didn't matter to where I was going to go. So I think that it, it instilled into me to just go after everything because you know that tomorrow's not promised because you've already been proven that. And that wasn't my first step at adversity with death, but it was obviously one that I talk about a lot, but there was another time as well. And so all of those events that built up in my mindset just taught me that like, hey, you're given multiple chances. Make sure that you capitalize on this life that you have ahead of you and make sure that you're able to live it to the best of your ability so you have no regrets in the end. Yeah, having no regrets in the end. That like that's something that I think about all the time. That I want to die empty. Right. Like I don't want to die with all my best ideas and whatever book ideas I have. Like, I want to know that I put it all out there. Right. And so you have such a great example of kind of this idea of taking no resources and doing whatever you can to to make it happen. And so, you know, at this point, 
we know Casanova Brooks. I know Casanova Brooks as being this big real estate guy and you made all these things happen, but you didn't even, when you moved to Omaha, you had a whole nother set of circumstances that kind of came through. And so, you know, I've seen on your website, you know, first year in real estate, I think 46 transactions closed, which sounds insane. I know there are people who are listening who are from the real estate industry and they're probably thinking, what, I can't get one or two deals a year. Not only did you have such a phenomenal year in terms of business, but that was even forced from having no resources. That didn't just happen that way. So can you tell us when you moved from Sioux City, Iowa to Omaha, break that story down? Because that's the one that took me out when we spoke last. Yeah. So that was all of my transition, you know, Ning, and I, and I do accredit it to God and, and me being able to just always expose myself. So basically what happened was I was living in Sioux City. I didn't have a degree, right? I did go to college for three years, but I wound up dropping out of college to pursue music, which is a crazy story in itself. But it was two months into my junior year, my grandma and mom had just dropped me off four and a half hours away. Then I decided I want to pursue music. I call them up and I'm like, Hey, I want to get, I, I want to leave college. And they're like, first off, you could have just told us this two months ago. <laughs> first of all. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm like, I get it. But I just had in my heart that just because you had a degree did not mean you were going to be successful in life. Oh, some parents need to hear that. Cause there's parents who are trying to force, I meet them all the time. I meet these young people all the time. And they're like, yeah, was I'm so doing big. engineering. And I'll tell you, I graduated high school at 17 years old. So for me being first generation of doing all of these different things, my mom and grandma had already, my baby going to college. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and I was just, it was so much pressure on me, but graduating and then going to college at 17 before I turned 18 and at a big four year university, I didn't know really where I was going to go. Nobody was mentoring me. My dad didn't do that or anything. So then I decided my junior year, this isn't what I want to do. So then my, my mom and grandma, as they always did, they supported me. And so they said, okay, you come back home, you're going to get a job. And so I was going to get a job. And you are I'm, lucky. I just have to, I just have to say they're there because most parents, especially if they're like pumping that into you from the gate, like from the time you're little and you have one year left, they like suck it up. You're going to get this degree. We're going to have this graduation party because all the folks at the church, right. and all the family and friends know you went to school and we're not about to say you didn't finish. And they make it about them as opposed to what you truly are feeling called to do. So that is a blessing. When you say that you had great support from these two women, you really did. I really did. Yeah. And, and I think that they knew that, like, for me, if I leave something, I have something else in mind. I'm not just quitting to quit, but I just I had these big dreams. Like, I couldn't allow myself to be boxed into somebody else's vision for me. Right. I, I, I couldn't allow that. So then, I mean, they heard they heard the energy, the passion in my voice. And I'm like, I got to go out and do it. So at the time we're pursuing music. So we, I wound up me and my buddy wound up withdrawn from all the classes taking my uh, student loan money, hopping on a Greyhound bus, and then going up to pursue music up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We also get some clothes and stuff like that um, made at the time. And I knew about Luda at this time. So we had a clothing line. I still got the clothes downstairs in my basement now. And I got shirts and they're called G-Fly. 
So I wound up finding somebody. This is way before dropshipping became a thing. I wound up finding somebody in AliExpress and got some people over in Nepal, India to make these shirts for me at a super low price. I borrowed the money from my buddy and I was going to come back to Sioux City and sell these shirts and hats out of the trunk of my car because I knew Luda did it at the time when he was selling his CDs and everything. And uh, so that was my thing. So then I, I wound up getting a couple different jobs, right? And, and to fast forward it on, um, I wound up getting a couple different jobs, which then led me to Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and as I get this job, I'm working for a company that's a big, big marketing company, but the telephone directory. So the company's called Dex. It's like DEX. They're all over the country. Anyway, I'm doing that. They're trying to transition out of getting solely into the phone book because they're losing so many clients. This is back in 2014. So they hire me on as a digital marketing consultant. So then they can um, basically tie their clients that are getting out of the phone book, tie them in with the online bundle with the telephone directory or whatever, right? So I wound up doing that within eight months, I finished number eight in the entire country for this company. So it was, it was crushing it. Well, then I quickly learned as being exposed on my own that the corporate environment was not for me. Everybody could tell you no, but it felt like nobody could tell me yes. So they had me leading all these emergent leader programs and all these other things, which was great. But then I wanted, since I made more money as a sales rep than a lot of managers and directors had, I was like, hey, I want to try my hand at management. They're like, ah, Casanova, but keep doing what you're doing. Those positions aren't available. I'm like, I wow. see where this is going. Like, nah. So then I started looking at real estate, right? And it was because, especially you being in Atlanta, I'm sure you know who Jay Morrison is. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I wound up coming across the Jay Morrison video just on YouTube on my own. And uh, because of my wife who had pushed me, who stood by me this whole time, she says, hey, you know what? You got to look into real estate. Now, there's a little bit more of how I you know, started to think about real estate. But as I started looking, I caught one of his videos. At the time, he was a celebrity realtor up in, in Jersey. This is before he moved and transitioned to, to um, Atlanta. And so he had said something that struck a chord with me where he says, be the Lord of your land because he or she who owns the land makes the rules. So I'm like, oh man, like, okay. And my favorite game growing up was always Monopoly. <laughs> right. So I'm like, OK, land on my property. You got to pay me and nobody ever owned real estate. So I'm like, OK, this sounds great. But I didn't know anything about owning real estate. But I seen that he was a celebrity realtor. So I knew he had worked with like Angela Yee and all these other affluent um, celebrities. So I'm like, OK, well, how about that? How about I get my real estate license? I serve other people, help them buy, sell and invest. Then I'll take my commissions own the real estate myself, create a life by my design. Boom, I'm great. Well, so I, I start pursuing getting my real estate license. About four months after getting my license, my mom and grandma calls me up and they say, hey, you know what? There's nothing left here in Sioux City for your grandma and I, and we want to move down there closer to Julie, CJ, and you, right? So I'm like, all right, cool. So within a couple of weeks, we moved my mom and grandma down here to Omaha, be closer to us. Well, within 24 hours of moving my mom down here, she winds up going to the hospital, um, the big hospital here in Omaha. Within a week and a half stretch, I lose my mom at that same hospital. Um, now, at this time, I was in a big transition period here in Omaha um, and between my whole life. So what did that look like? 
One, I was transitioning from inside sales at Dex to outside sales at a big payroll company, which is a national company as well. And a uh, reason being is because now that I had this real estate license, I needed to find a way to get outside of the, the office space so I could build my business on the real estate side so that I could let it go full-time real estate. And so I was working on that. I was transitioning. I was in my first month there. And then also we were in our process of buying our first home. It was a little $140,000 split entry, three bed, two bath home. So these all things happen while my mom calls me up. So then they got a training that's up in Rochester, New York at this new company that I'm at that, that, that before they'll give me a territory, I need to complete this training. So as my mom goes into the hospital, she's in this coma. I'm now supposed to fly up. It was already planned for me to go up to this training. I didn't want to go, but I had to because, you know, being a mortgage loan officer and being in real estate, when they go to close on your loan, they're going to re-verify employment. So I had to go because my manager was like, if you don't go, we can't keep you employed here. You don't even have a territory. So I'm like, all right, boom. So then I, my mom and the nurses are like, hey, your grandma's here, your wife's here. We're going to take care of your mom. You just got to go for a week's time. Once you get back, we'll be here. Everything will resume. So within three days, my mom starts to get better. We're texting everything. It's going well. But then the fourth day, my mom gone. I get the phone call, 9 p.m. at night. I'm on the next 4 a.m. flight back to Omaha. I got to handle all of the funeral arrangements, everything. Well, then my manager comes back after I handle that. My manager comes back, says, Casanova, you know, I'm sorry about your situation, but we need you to go back to Rochester, New York to finish out this training. And I'm like, with all due respect, I can't. My wife needs me here, my son and my grandma, who's 72 years old. And my grandma's lived with my mom for 40 of my mom's 50 years. So more than just losing her only daughter, it's like she's lost her companion. So I'm like, nah, I can't leave my grandma here again. She's in an apartment. She doesn't know no one here. My manager's like, I get it, but there's nothing I could do here. This is corporate. I'm like, listen, I got this real estate license. I close on this house. Within um, three weeks, if you would just give me three weeks, I'll be out of your hair. Like, so my manager is super cool. She's like, you know what, Casanova, I got you. So she holds me down. She allows me to put in a three-week notice. Well, two days before we're supposed to close on the house, underwrite and then want some more information on my student loans from the University of Iowa that's in deferment, right? Then that pushes out my closing date from that, that Friday to that next Monday. Well, then they go to re-verify employment on that Monday. The payroll company, Paychecks is the name. They say, hey, Casanova no longer works here as of Friday. Now they can't verify the loan. My loan officer calls me up. What the? I'm like, first off, I just met you like three weeks ago. You know, I can't tell you that I'm not going to have a job and I'm going through all of this. I needed this to have a place for my grandma, have a place for my family. So as a result of all of that, I lose my mom, my job and my home all within a matter of weeks. And I got no degree. I got no family, no friends, no church group, no sphere of influence here in Omaha. All I got is a real estate license that I don't even know what to do with. So I was going to go back and get Ooh. a W-2 job. My wife's like, no, nah, you got to make something shake. Right. And so I get in within four months. I got my first deal just by hustling, grinding. And within the next nine months, I do 46 deals, eight million dollars in volume. I get the rookie of the year in Nebraska and uh, the rest, you know, is history. I, I just kept building my business from there. Woo, man, I can't even imagine what could have been going through your mind during those weeks when it's like back to back to back. Cause we, I'm sure if you, if you've been living long enough, you have had one of these experiences where you felt like if it's not one thing, it's another. 
um, where you feel like, you know, as they say, oh, when it rains, it pours and all the cliches, like all the things you were describing one of those one of those times. So at any time in those weeks when all this is going on and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to go get a job before Julie steps in and is like, nah, you need to focus. And shout out to Julie because I've had to be that for my husband. And I know what that is like as well. Like that's everything to have that type of support. Um, What was going through your mind? Like literally, like, is there any point in this where you were just like, now, come on, God. To be honest with you, I didn't allow myself to think too much on it because I knew that that could allow me to disrupt, right? And so for me, I only just thought about what's the next step to get to where, because I knew that I could have wallowed or, yeah, I could have just sat there in, in my, what felt like a defeat, right? But But then that wouldn't have helped me get to the next point where I knew that I still had three people that were depending on me. Right. And, and then on top of that, I mean, being, um, I have a son at this, at this time where I lose everything, I got a son who's three years old, right. We lost everything. So we have to then go live with her second aunt who we weren't close with, but she's going through a divorce at this time. So she says, Hey, I'm li- I'm going through this divorce. You guys can come live in my basement. Now she has one bedroom in her basement and she has a she has a ranch house. So, you know, one level with a huge basement and the basement has a huge storage utility room. So what we decided to do is allow CJ to live in the bedroom and we put our bed and our dresser and our TV in the utility room. Right. So we're sleeping for the next year next to a furnace and a water heater. Hearing that thing kick on every single day. But what's crazy about it is I'm out here helping people buy 200, $300,000 houses, and I'm promoting home ownership where they don't know that I'm going back to sleep next to a furnace, right? But again, I couldn't allow myself to just be like, oh my God, why me? Because that was never going to get me out of my situation. So that's what I always, I just always tried to look at what was, a, I, I tried to find a happy place. And because I seen that there was so much potential that I didn't allow myself to really just sit, I, I had to keep going, right? I had to keep in constant motion. So I didn't think about it. Uh, so when you were in that utility room in the basement, like, did you and Julie ever butt heads? Like, was she always down or did you find that there were some times when it just got, it just got tight? No, I would, to be honest, the button, we did have some button of heads, but it was not between her and I, it was between, because the other, just a small point in this was the, the, the aunt is going through this divorce situation where there's a 17 year old kid who's about to graduate high school. And he's the child that she's trying to really love on because there's a separation piece. And she, well, she's allowing him to have all of the high school parties at his house. Right. And so keep in mind that this basement and in the unfinished utility room, you're not going to finish off the ceiling. Right. And the utility room is right underneath the kitchen. So these are 17, 18, some even 16 year old kids that are now partying at this house essentially three to four times a week. And she's the cool mom. So now we got CJ. He's that's his older cousin. So he's trying to be up there hanging out with the kids. <laughs> and, and we're hearing all of the footsteps. We got to go to work, things like that. So it was it was very 
tense in that sense. But give so much credit to Julie. Between her and I, maybe it was because she had been with, I mean, we've been together now for 17 years. So we're high school sweethearts. So okay. she's seen me through the cancer, through everything. So, no, I had so much excitement. And she knew that I, I was already feeling so much pride and things like that. Because now, not only is my wife supporting me emotionally, but she's supporting me financially. And we're talking about on a little 11, $12 an hour, you know, job, like, cause she has no degree neither. Right. So there was a lot that I think that she already understood. And she understood that every single day I was getting out there and I was getting it. Yeah. Right? So it was almost like that pursuit of happiness where Will Smith is, is, is running with his uh, machine. She's mm-hmm. seeing that I was running with the machine. I had the baggage. I just needed a couple of things to fall into my favor. So no, she was just as much of a rock as, as I've ever had through those toughest of times. Uh, that makes me so happy to hear. One quote that I heard you say on a video was, you don't have to love the process, but you have to be married to the destination. Facts. And, oh, I resonated with that so much. And that that really describes so much of your journey because people think that when they see you in these celebrated places, right, they make immediate assumptions about, well, they had support and he got a wife, she got a husband, they got a good mama, you know, they might have a great dad. They Like it's all these things, but it's like, even with that, this process is not for the faint of heart. Like my granny used to say, if you just keep living, it's not a matter of if, it's when, like life is going to happen. You are going to get dealt some cards that you did not bargain for. Like that's not what was in your imagination. Like that was not the destination at all. But these things happen on the pro- in the process. And if you're waiting for a perfect process, you're going to miss it all. You're going to miss it all. That, that's exactly what it is. And, and for me, I always looked at, again, what was, I, I say all the time and people come to me about real estate, whether it's investing or being an agent, but I say, understand that real estate is my what and my how. It's not my why. It's what I do, what I've done and how I make my money and how I've gotten to this point. But it's not why I get up every single day, right? Our goals, we all have, that's why I have the Dream Nation podcast is we all have dreams. Everything starts with a dream from once we're a little boy or a little girl, right? And those of us who dare to dream while the rest of the world is settling for what society will tell us is our reality, we're the ones who stand to be trailblazers and change makers in this world, right? And make it a better place. So for me, I always looked at what was my why. My end goal was to be able to live a life by my design and to inspire people to do those as well. Not everybody wants to get into real estate, but everybody wants to have financial literacy. Everybody wants to be able to build connections with genuine, authentic people. And everybody wants to know that they had an impact on this world, that they left it better than when they came in. It's kind of like that sense of, you know, I'm, I'm a born sinner, but I'll live better than that. Right. That's that's I I absolutely love those. And so for me, I always looked at what was my why at the end of the day. It was to live a life by my design. And I felt that real estate gave me enough value to be able to serve other people. But also it created generational wealth and and all those things encompassed into why I do what I do and to be able to hand something down to my family. And there's one other quote that that I've heard that struck me like a chord. But it said, you know, if I didn't come from a financial family or, or a loving family or a smart family, whatever it was, that a loving family had to come from me 
or financial literate family had to come from me. So that's what I know. And, and that's what I strive to do every day is to make sure that those that come after me, you know, that they have something that I didn't have growing up. I love that. I love that. What really stands out to me about you is, is that, is that the real estate is what you do and how you make a living, but it's clear that that's not your why because you have this platform. So I don't know very many real estate agents who, you know, have a podcast and they're speakers and they're coaching and they're like doing all this stuff. Like your site is amazing. Right. And it's like, what inspired you than to create a platform out of it when there's so many people who are literally, you know, just a real estate agent. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but the way you've been able to take these multiple passions and bring them all together to create this whole dream nation and and everything else that you do, like, how did that all come about? Yeah, and I would say that this was a very challenging thing for me for about a year and a half. Right. Because I struggle with people only thinking of me as a real estate agent. A lot of times when we get a job or a profession or a skill, we it's a struggle for us, for other people, for one, for us to not feel like we're an imposter if we talk about other things, because that's all we've known. Right. And so I struggle with that. But I had to really and and it's it's with the um, help of mentors. Right. Help of people just like you that I've been able to bounce ideas off of. And that's why, because I knew real estate was people don't buy what you do. They buy who you are and why you're doing it. Right. And so for me, I looked at that and I was like, okay, what I'm doing is real estate. But if I decide that I don't want to do real estate anymore, how can I make sure that I still have these relationships that people will support me in anything else? And so I really looked at what was my gift. I've I've had success. If you follow my story way back and, and for anybody who chooses to, you'll see that I've had success in a lot of different areas, right? And in all different sales. But what I quickly found was there was always about the people. And so for me, I say to people all the time, when you think about what your gift is, right? It's what do people already say, wow, and thank you for in the same sentence. And so for people like you and I, it might be speaking, right? And it's owning your story. It doesn't matter what type of a story you had, because something that was even said to me is understand, even if you're a five right now, you're not a 10, even if you're a five right now, right? And it might even, was it you who said this to me? (laughs) It was me. (laughs) I was like, okay. And I just know that I heard that, but it stuck in my mind. Yeah, I'm glad. Right. If you're a five right now, and I always remember to give credit to you now um, from here on. But finding those twos, threes and fours. Right. Because I, I struggle with that very much. And so the, the other thing is to understand that whoever you are right now, you're listening at this as you start to think about what your gifts are. Understand that if you everyone has an unfair advantage. Everyone does. And it's dependent on what it is. For me, I understood early on that my unfair advantage was to be able to go up to someone who's as prominent and as affluent as you are and 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 be able to put aside my fears and my emotions, knowing that you're speaking on a stage that has 1,600 people. So you got about 250, 300 people at least that's going to come up to you and try to get you on their podcast or whatever else. But at that moment, when I saw you before you went on stage, it was, look, you got to put on your big boy pants. You're gonna walk. <laughs> the answer is always no if you don't go up and at least introduce yourself. 
So that was what I did. And I understood that my unfair advantage is being able to build relationships with people in a short amount of time because I just have an energy that I understand that God and my mom has blessed me with. So everybody has a different energy and a different value that they can give to other people. I also understood that you have a story that's unlike anything that I've heard. So what was the value? Okay, I know that I have an audience and I have a platform. How can I share her story? And so that's what I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's understanding that I had that unfair advantage and that I did have that platform. And I just wanted to make sure that I can connect more people. I could be a Robin Hood in the sense that not everybody can get Patrice on their show and ask those questions. So I got I got a responsibility that if I am able to get her out there to connect her with somebody else that maybe needs to hear her voice. Mm. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. This idea of the unfair advantage too, like you are really going to help a lot of people because so many of us struggle. Like you, I never felt like I had any gifts in particular. So I always equated gifts to like talent in terms of like, oh, you know, I mean, I play basketball, but I'm like not that great. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I did make it in LA times, but that's another story. Um, You know, like I do these things. I played piano, but, mm, you know, you don't want to see me in concert. I like singing in the shower, but that ain't it. Right. So I always thought it was it was those types of things. Mm -hmm. I never thought that my unfair advantage was that I have never been afraid to speak, Mm -hmm. right? Afraid to get up on stage. Now there's fear that comes up when I'm in a new space. Don't get me wrong. So speaking at Thrive, like you said, it's like 1600 plus people coming through the smoke, you know, on stage in Vegas for in a new audience, someplace I'd never been. Eric Thomas is speaking. Trent Shelton is speaking. There's some heavy hitters there. And I'm like, Lord, like, like, okay, we're doing this right. And so, yeah, the first few minutes is the nerves, but then I get in my groove and it's like, you belong here. This is what you do. Right. And so, and I've spoken in front of 10,000 people on stage with Steve Harvey or, you know, several opportunities, but I say that to say the unfair advantages, even when I didn't have the most esteem, the most self-esteem or, I didn't feel my best. I didn't feel my prettiest. I didn't feel the greatest. What I knew I could do was hold my own on a mic Mm -hmm. if I just got up. Like if I just stood up and said, you know what, God, I'm going to do all I can do. And then I'm going to stand and let you do what you do Mm -hmm. and speak through me. Right. And that is the unfair advantage. And so for anyone who is struggling with this idea, we say finding your purpose. I truly believe it's just embracing it. It's not that you're like finding something because this is who you've been. Like your ability to do what you do has probably been in you for for some time. Like, you know, before the cancer in high school, you made reference to you was kind of the man. Like you, you know, you had <laughs> you, I, I, I you already did. doing yeah, your yeah. thing. I was all right. I was all right. Yeah. Right. I, I would have definitely, definitely agree. You know, it's embracing who you already are. And and shout out to Neo. This was something when I first like heard him speak for the first time, but he had said something to, to, to me or it was, it spoke to me, at least I think he was doing a lot, but he said, what comes easy for you and harder for others? Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and we all have that. 
It could be support on the back end. It could be bookkeeping. It could be just understanding logistics. It could be management. It could be speaking. It could be building relationships. What comes easy for you and that's harder for others? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then embrace it because mm-hmm. we we blow it off. We do. We blow and, it off because we'll be like, oh, but so-and-so is doing this or this person's doing that. And we're so busy looking to the left and the right that we just don't accept literally what's right under our nose. And we think it has to be some like the skies are parting moment as opposed to being intentional mm-hmm. daily with cultivating and embracing and nurturing these things that already are. You don't have to go look for them. They're not hiding. They already are. So what could you do to invest in mastering those things that are? You know what I'm saying? You said something too on your Instagram. It said, you're listening to the 1% and then doing what the 99% do. Ooh, that took me out. (laughs) Because that is real talk. Absolutely. And I think that that's what a lot of people, they, they, it's, it's like the cliche, you know, saying, which I always like to ask people this though, is again, if you want to be a a surgeon, right, are you going to go and do what plumbers do? You're not right. A lot of the times we want to own businesses, right? We want to start up our own business owner, but yet we're getting our information from the person that's sitting right next to us in a cubicle that ain't never owned a business. But we're talking about, hey, we're going to go out, we're going to start this business. And and so I always encourage people to look at who's in the space that you want to be in. And, and this was something that I can't remember what the guy's name who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, do you remember? Jack Canfield. Jack Canfield. So he's got a book and I can't remember exactly, but I've read the book. But anyway, he talks about being able to go out there and create the life that you want. And so with that, I always start that, okay, if you could ask yourself, what is it exactly that you want to do for the rest of your life? Now, you might say, you know what, I just want to sit up and drink coffee and hear other people's stories. And it's like, okay, well, why can't you? And it's like, because you might think that that's not really a thing. Well, then I would ask you, what is it exactly that Ellen does? Right. Like you have to really think about that. What exactly does Ellen do? That's what she does. But she's created a platform to allow other people to share their stories. Right. And and now she's just built the relationships. So that's what I would encourage you to do. And and it's called the success principles. By uh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing book. And that's the one thing that he said. He was like, I would I would ask you, what do these people do? What does Oprah Winfrey do? Create a platform, build a tribe that can give to more people, because even if you're again at level five, there's twos, threes and fours that just want to be where you are. Shout mm-hmm. out to Miss Patrice Washington. <laughs> like that was everything for me because we've all struggled with feeling like we don't have enough talents, gifts or enough to give to the world. But we yeah. do. We just have to, as you said, stop comparing ourselves to other people. Right. And start Mm -hmm. looking at what that one percent of people do that's already in your space. If they've created a platform, a podcast, a regular show, whatever, then you figure out how you can do it. But how can you advance the conversation or the entertainment just a little smidge? Because another thing that I learned in the world of marketing is, listen, people will pay more money for the exact same product, just packaged in a different way. Let me say that again. People will pay more money for the exact same product, 
just packaged in a different way. And that could be a YouTube video, an Amazon white label thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Put your own spin on it because your story and your thoughts are going to be different from anyone else's. Amen. I love it. I love it. Oh, I knew this was going to be good. Uh, Casanova, before I let you go, I have to ask you some redefining wealth, rapid wisdom questions. So you're going to tell us the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Yeah. How do you define success? I define success by the amount of people. And and there's a backstory behind this and I'll, I'll make it very brief. So I heard from Warren Buffett, a lot of people, you know, have said that Warren Buffett is an atheist. He doesn't really talk about afterlife and things like that. He just lives his life. And you can kind of see that he's kind of that straightforward guy. I just read something on CNBC that said he drinks five Cokes a day, right? Whereas most people would be like, oh my God, but look at him. He's what? 87, 88 years old, still leading billion dollar companies. So again, get it how you live is the point. But anyway, somebody asked Warren Buffett at a conference and it said, Warren, how do you know when you've truly been successful in life? And he said, you'll never know when you've truly been successful until you die and you see how many people come to your funeral. Now, first, Warren Buffett talking about that, people are like, oh my, what? Warren talking about afterlife? But he said, more importantly than that though, You'll never know how truly successful you've been until you see how many people cry at your funeral, because those are the people who you've truly impacted their lives. You know why I sat back? Do you know I got that lesson when I was a little kid? And I know my audience is probably tired of hearing it, but it is what it is. When I was a little kid, my mom, I'll make it quick too going past the funeral processional, I always was used to having to turn the car off because it would be long. That was my thought, you know, whenever I'd see those motorcycle cops, like, oh, we got to be here. So my mom's going to turn the car off. Processional goes by, motorcycle cop, couple cars. It's not even, it doesn't even feel like a minute. And we go, I'm like third grade. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what happened? And my mom is like, oh, it's done. And she's real nonchalant about it, but I'm distraught. Cause I'm like, where are the people? Like, why didn't, like, why weren't there more people? Now we don't know whose funeral was. We don't know anything, but I was distraught at the idea that more people wouldn't show up to someone's funeral and literally made this, this pact with myself third grade. I got to live a life where people going to get off work and come see about me. If, right. if I go down, everyone who's listening to this podcast, you better post, you better take off work, you better change your profile picture, <laughs> you better share be something. Because especially as a parent, I need my daughter to know that the times that mommy was away, the times mommy was in the closet, the times mommy was locking herself in hotel rooms, writing books that she felt like we're going to truly bless people, that it mattered to y'all. Y'all better show up. It better not be my husband and my daughter on that on that pew and nobody else. That's unacceptable. And right. that's but that is how I literally chose to live my life. Mm-hmm. Do enough that makes an impact where when you die, people want to see about you. And I have never heard that about Warren Buffett. You're the first person to tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was huge. When I heard that was at the beginning of my real estate career, it was probably about three months in, I was at a a sales meeting and that got said, and that struck a chord. And I was like, oh my God, right. How many people cry that you truly impacted their life? Don't just show if they cry. Then you're like, you know what, you know, don't cry. Rejoice, right. Rejoice that I was here. Rejoice at the time that we had together. Uh, I'm still here in your spirit. 
Man, that's what's up. Okay. How do you define wealth in three words or less? Um, great question. Um, I would say generational. I would say generational. One word? You're the first to choose one word. Come on, somebody. Generational. I'm with it. Um, What's one book that has redefined how you see wealth? There's really two books that go hand in hand, but as cliche as it is, I'm going to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the, the ultimate of what got me to this point. It was the first time that I recognized when I was selling cars that I was trading time for money. And, and I was crushing it at that. But I couldn't sell a car if I wasn't at the dealership. So to be able to have more control over my time, I needed to really understand how money worked, especially how money works in the U.S. And so Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then after you've read that, make sure that you read uh, Cash Flow Quadrant, because that was where I really understood the power of taxes, owning businesses, corporations, and how you can make the system work for you. So very good. Yeah, those are good. All right. You're going to fill in the blank. My name is... And for me, the truth about wealth is. My name is, and for me, the truth about wealth. No, you got to fill in the blank. What's your name? Uh, my fault. <laughs> I was already thinking of what the second part was. I was like, oh, okay. So my name is Casanova. And for me, the truth about wealth is understanding that real estate, business, and credit will be the things that allow you and your legacy to live on for many generations to come. Awesome. Thank you so much, Casanova. Thank you. This was good. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Yes. Thank you for having me on. All right. Did you learn something today? Did he not remind you of so much of what we've talked about in the Creative for Purpose Challenge this week? Casanova Thank you so much again, because I know you're going to listen to this. I hope that you are inspired to use your story, to own your story, to identify your unfair advantage and to be unapologetic about going out in the world and using it. Right. When he talked about also not really being clear about what the gifts were and we talked about it doesn't happen in the thinking, it happens in the doing. I hope that that really resonates. I hope that if you're one of the people who are struggling and you're stuck and you're spiraling in cycles of confusion, that you will come, come to the challenge, patricewashington.com forward slash challenge. Watch those replays, start to unpack this stuff, start to unpack it so that you can use your voice and use your story to impact lives and to change your own life. Quite frankly, story wasn't given to you for nothing, wasn't given to you for nothing. So You can find Casanova Brooks in social media. His Instagram handle is Casanova underscore Brooks. Find him on Casanova Brooks uh, one on Facebook. And you can always find me at Seek Wisdom PCW. If you want to share any thoughts or reflections about this episode or in the Purpose Chaser community, it's the Redefining Wealth community on Facebook. Wherever you are, I'm praying for you. I mean that sincerely and wholeheartedly. I pray for this community all the time. I just pray that we all keep using our voices, not only for ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. So until next time, because you know my heart is heavy this week, right? 
Until next time, I need you to go live your life's purpose, find fulfillment and earn more without ever chasing money. Talk to you later. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.